Okay, welcome back, and let's get started. Uh, we are going to get into the book of Job today. So there is an updated outline for notes that should have been available sometime last night. And you should be able to open it up if you have the internet right now. I also want to mention that I, I don't know how well this will work for you. We, I haven't really tried it with many other people, but the presentation uh, program that I use, Proclaim, sends uh, signals. And so what that means is that if you get the app for it, uh, I think the scriptures actually will pop up on your phone. So you can get, you can get the Proclaim app, and then you can follow the presentation. I think what will happen is once it realizes uh, that there's a, a proclaimed presentation going on, it'll ask you if you want to follow it, and then I think it'll, it'll pop them up. So uh, that's actually how I'm able to control it. I'm, I'm just controlling the presentation. You can't do that, but um, at least that's what the email says. So I also have uh, added, I took some extra time last night, and I tried to create some of the slides so that your fill-in-the-blanks will actually show up up here also. Uh, there's no promise that that will happen every week, and we'll see how it goes today. Um, I'm still trying to streamline the process of, um, I really don't like to redo things three times. And uh, unfortunately, it just seems like with technology, that's often what you end up doing. So, with that being said, let's jump into our introduction to Job. Okay, Job is part of the wisdom literature, and as we learned last week, the wisdom literature of the ancient Near East kind of divided life up into four categories, the cosmos and nature, government and law, ethics and ritual, and family and society, all interwoven together and connected by God in the centerpiece. And so with the book of Job, we're going to be dealing with these issues. Specifically, we're going to end up dealing with an issue related to uh, suffering, but there's also another issue related to God, the, the middle piece of the puzzle, and how he runs things and his sovereignty, etc. The other aspect related to our, our wisdom literature is, as you can see on this diagram here, we're going to be looking at the book of Job, and it's going to be discussing the issue of moral structure. So you can see each of the five books that are part of the, the poetry or wisdom lit, however you want to gen generally um, define them, deals with these issues. So Psalms is what we'll look at next, relationship to God, Proverbs, society and family, uh, Song of Solomon or Songs, Love and Sex, and Ecclesiastes and Meaning of Life. So this is what we're looking at. And the reason why it's important to just throw this up in the beginning is so you understand a little bit about where, where we're heading. Uh, you know, we're not really dealing so much with, uh, with love in, in Job, not in, you know, the meaning of love that you, you would think of at first. So that's going to be Song of Songs. We'll find that somewhere else. Um, another chart, just quickly to throw up there, is this chart here with the Old Testament structure and timeline. And I want to point out, we'll bring this back up in a little bit when I get to the details of our notes today, is what we want to put ourselves in the proper place. And so... Most scholars think that Job took period in the Genesis time period. So it's a patriarchal time period. And so when we're thinking about this, we, we want to be thinking that this is, this is the same time period maybe as, as Abraham. And so that's not going to be, you know, 
King David or, or King Saul. So it's the patriarchal throne period. Okay. With that being said, we're going to look at the book of Job. A man who suffers a great deal, one of the um, most highly revered literary pieces uh, in all of literature, really, is the book of Job. And this image here kind of depicts a lot of what's going on. Uh, who are the three people over there on the right? Yep, and, and what is he doing here in the middle? Exactly, okay? And you have a broken piece of, of pottery pot shirt right there, he's using to do so. And so the artist's rendition of, of some of the things that's going on in the book of Job. So as we look at our introduction to Job, the first thing that we want to look at here is the title. I don't know exactly how they went through things with your OT1 class, for those of you that have already taken that, but it's pretty standard in survey courses that we look at uh, the title, the author, the date, etc., and then we look at some of the details of the book itself. Remember also that this is a survey class, which means that I'm going to touch on a bunch of different topics and ideas, and we won't get a lot of them solved, maybe, and there's a lot of other things that we won't even touch on due to the time. So Job is over 40 chapters, and we have today and maybe a little bit of time next week you know, to touch on it. So the title of the book. <coughs> The title of the book, where does that come from? Well, it comes from the Septuagint translation, the LXX that we talked about last week. So you can either write the word Septuagint, S-E-P-T-U-A-G-I-N-T, or you can put LXX. I always just abbreviate whenever possible. Um, being a student, um, abbreviation is probably your, your best friend, as long as you can remember what the abbreviation is, right? So <coughs> I remember one time um, when I was in seminary, I, I, I was abbreviating like everything. And it can get messy if uh, you have the same abbreviations for two different disciplines. So there were some things where in criminal justice I had abbreviations because that was my bachelor's degree. And there were some things that had this, I used the same abbreviation for Bible-related stuff. So you just have to know, like, which one am I talking about? Anyways, I'm telling you that to tell you this. Um, I sent an email to one of my friends. And literally he responded, and he said, this isn't how he said it. He didn't say it correctly, Mike probably. But he's like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Every other word is an abbreviation, and I don't know what any of them are. And so, uh, you know, your abbreviations have to, have to work for you. They don't have to work for anybody else. But if you are going to communicate to them, then you, they do have to work in that sense. The Septuagint <coughs> is where it comes from. It reflects the common name in the ancient Near East. A-N-E is the abbreviation on that. So we already got two abbreviations, right? Um, the name of the book is that of the chief character, Job. So what I've done, if you're using the notes that I've uh, printed online, is you have most of the same stuff that, that I have here. So basically I create my thesis note, and then I, I just make some of them fill in the blanks. All right? Uh, I look at them sometimes, and I, I kind of ask myself, you know, whether or not you need some of this, and then... I leave it for the students that want it, and the others that don't care, they just skip it anyways, right? So whichever one works for you. But the name comes from the main character. The title Job has been used as far back as Jewish tradition goes, and Christians have likewise always used it. So it was, it was a common name, Job's name, in the, the second millennium B.C., meaning where is father? 
according to John Walton. Um, Archer, though, Commission Archer, indicates that it could also mean several other things. And I have those listed for you there. I don't want to spend a ton of time uh, analyzing out exactly where his name came from, what it means, and, and all that type of stuff. Uh, we could spend the next 20 minutes talking about it. So it's listed there for you under the A, B, C, D, and you can see that there's multiple possibilities. Um, they, they lean a little bit towards an, the Arabic, Arabic um, because of time period where he was, et cetera, et cetera, which, again, every bit of that has some level of, of guesswork or speculation tied to it, okay? And that's what you're going to find when you're dealing with situations in texts that are thousands and thousands of years old because no, no one's there. So we do the best we can. <coughs> so who is the author of the book? Okay, The author is uh, Job, or it could potentially uh, be Moses, is, is what some people think. So that's, that's your two choices. Now, the author situation, you know, is, is maybe a little more um, of a concerning issue, like we're going to who wrote it. Well, in the New Testament, even the book of Hebrews, we really don't know who wrote it. Um, I mean, you can argue your case, and if you do enough research, you probably have a pretty well-reasoned um, case for whoever that is. But the, the bottom line is that, as we talked about last week, a Job has been included in the canon for as long as we know pretty much, right? So there's really not a doubt about it, and that is the important thing. Uh, who exactly God used to write it on some parchment or vellum isn't as big of a deal. We move then to the date that it was written, and again, we really don't know. I mean, there's a big sense. You can just put a big question mark on your whole page, right? So we're not sure. There's, there's five views that Archer talks about. Um, the patriarchal age, which is what we have mentioned, the reign of Solomon, which obviously is not the, the patriarchal age, uh, Manasseh, Jeremiah, or, or during or after the exile. So any of those, you know, you can find somebody that will support them. The author's frequent use of the, the word Lord, Yahweh, in the prose section suggests that he wrote from an Israelite national uh, perspective is what uh, some would argue. So the vocabulary and style, letter C, was so challenging to the Greek translation of Job that they skipped translating a number of lines, further suggesting an earlier date for the composition of Job. So that's just a few things that point to, hey, maybe patriarchal age. All right? So, you know, if you're asked the question, when um, was it written or when did it take place, which, by the way, those are two separate things. Okay? So keep those in mind also. When it took place and when it, written, when it was written are not the same questions and could have very different answers. So let's just take an easy one. Uh, when creation happened and when the creation story was written are clearly not the same, right? Moses wrote the creation story somewhere probably after the Exodus 1450 BC, give or take, and that's not when God did his creation work, right? So big gap between those. Uh, the historicity. Okay, what do I mean by this word? I, I mean, is it real? One of the questions about the, the book of Job is, is God for real? Like, is he really exist? Or is this more like a fable, a parable, or some made-up thing? Now, you don't only have this with the Old Testament, although there's many things in the Old Testament that um, some, I don't want to call them liberal scholars, but I guess I will, the liberal scholars would immediately question. But it's not just the Old Testament. You have similar issues in the New Testament with <coughs> the 
the sixteen for instance is a is a parable that was originally on Lazarus. Or are are those real people or is it just a story that he just made up? So made up stories still teach, right? That is why Jesus used parables, right? They're made up stories, right? They do teach. They are still true. They are inspired if they're divinely inscripted. Inspired doesn't mean they historically happened. That's a parable, it just means Jesus historically told it. Right? So that's one of the questions about the the book of Job. However, okay, here's a couple of things that are important, I think, that demonstrate the historicity. Ezekiel, letter A. Job is mentioned in Ezekiel 14.14 and 14.20, along with Noah and Daniel, as men of righteousness. Ezekiel 14.14. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. This is the declaration of the Lord God. He's talking about judgment. And he's saying that even these guys, now to understand the context, you've got to realize what's going on here. So judgment is coming. There's going to be a judgment. So he's saying, basically, nothing's going to stop this judgment from coming. And then he picks three guys. Now to make this work, what he's trying to do in context, these three guys all have to be similar. They're all three guys that are righteous. They're God followers. They're blameless. We'll get to that word in a little little bit. Noah, Daniel, and Job. And he's saying, even these three guys, yeah, God might save those three boys, but their righteousness is not going to save the place. So when I read that, I also think of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham bartered for Sodom and Gomorrah based on the hope that there would be ten righteous people there. There were not. So uh, your righteousness and, and how you live your life Theologically, we get our righteousness from Christ. But how you live your life in God's people, it does have a mitigating impact on our world. You know, think about how how bad our world might be right now. Imagine if you took every Christian out. Right? There'd be no mitigating Holy Spirit. Alright? So, Ezekiel 14.20 Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, they could not deliver their son or daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. Same thing, except here we have the addition, more specific, okay, of son or daughter. So, if you compare the two, you could almost say, from what I taught you the other day, that's like a synthetic parallelism. One added to the other, right? So here he specifies son or daughter. <coughs> so that's 1420. Um, furthermore, letter B, Job is mentioned in James 5.11. James 5.11. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So now you have a New Testament writer inspired. Okay, James, that we would hold to be uh, the half-brother of Jesus, writing and saying that Job is, is real. Right? So this demonstrates what? Well, that Job's real. The historicity is real. It, it, the historical really did happen. Okay? What's the genre? The book of Job belongs to a literary type called speculative wisdom. Speculative wisdom is what your answer is. This explores the great questions of human existence. Another, A number of other ancient Near Eastern texts have parallels to Job. So there's some Egyptian works, there's some Mesopotamian works, 
um, there's, there's other Israelite light works. But only the Israelite wisdom here, okay, based on the fear of the Lord, is, is um, like the book of Job. Job is this idea, in, in this particular case, of speculative wisdom. Why is it speculative wisdom? Job doesn't know what's going on. He's speculating. That's another thing we have to understand when we read the book of Job. Job doesn't have chapter 1. You and I have chapter 1. Job doesn't realize what's going on in the heavens with God and Satan, etc. He doesn't have that. So he's trying to figure out, this is what's going on with you and me in our life when, when cool bad things are happening in our life. Yeah, we don't have that first chapter either. So we need to remember that. We're just like Job in that situation. And so when we don't have the first chapter, we're just left to wonder what's going on. That's what's going on. So he's speculating. Their friends are speculating. Why? Because they don't have that. It's not the same as the, the wisdom that's in Proverbs, where you have an inspired writer from God saying, this is wisdom, or this is not wisdom. Okay, so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1-7, right? Well, Job doesn't really have that. Job and his friends are trying to figure this out. And so we see or we learn about wisdom and suffering and sovereignty and all this through the drama that's played out in his life. Letter B. Uh, it is mainly poetry with some prose. That's your blank. Get it on the screen. Mainly poetry. With some prose. Okay, let's talk about the setting for a minute then. Alright? The setting is going to be in what I've already told you. It's going to be the, the patriarchal time period. Seems indicated by the following. Um, there's also a chart. I said there's a, a chart. Uh, I think I'm referring to page uh, 17. On the front where you have a chart that shows, it's, uh, it's fairly small. You can probably blow it up on your computer. But it talks about when the events are recorded in the book of uh, poetry and wisdom occurred, and then the second one is when the events of Job occurred. You can see that it's got the little arrow down by the time period of uh, Abraham. So I think that's the, the chart I'm referring to. So what are some things, though? The patriarchal family, or the clan. In other words, the, the way the family system is set up of what's going on in the book of Job indicates that it is in the time period of this patriarchal family clan. Also, with the priest as the head of the home, Job is offering sacrifices for his children. Okay, he's, he's not going to a temple or tabernacle. He's just not a priest that's doing it. But prior to the Levites and the priests being set up with those duties, uh, the father of the house acted as priest for his family. And that's what you see going on. There's also a piece of money called a kasitza uh, that suggests a date at least as early as Joshua. Okay, you can compare that with Joshua and, and the book of Job. And so, again, what, what do we find when we're looking at these different pieces of information? Well, we just find a little uh, something here, and we compare it with what we know over here, and, and we try to come to a conclusion. And that's all we're doing, you know, the best conclusion we can. Uh, what is the location? Okay, the location um, is unknown, the exact location. But the best we can do is um, probably a region south of Palestine and Edom or northwest Arabia. 
So um, somewhere in that area. Now you can, you know, debate a little bit where or, or try to pinpoint. So this is things in the Mediterranean. Um, see, there's the beach that's over here. But right here, this is Israel. what the best guess is on that. Um, <coughs> Gleason Archer says northern Arabia. And so it says the district of Uz or Uz in which the action took place was located in northern Arabia. The Septuagint refers to it as the land of um, Asutai, a people whom Ptolemy, the geographer, locates in the Arabian desert adjacent to the Edomites of Mount Seir. And so it says Job's friends Eliphaz came from Teman, a well-known locality in Edom. And Elihu came from the Buzites, who probably lived adjacent to the Chaldeans in northeast Arabia. So, that's, that's the best guess we have. Um, either way, it's the, the ancient Near East, right? Over between Canaan and Mesopotamia in that time period, in that area. Uh, the setting, uh, the characters, you have them listed there for you already. Uh, Job, God saving Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. So then we move on to the theme. The theme, suffering and sovereignty. These are, these are two of the issues okay, that are going to be front and center. Now, there's another way I could have um, written that, and we'll discuss that as we get into the actual text in a little bit. But the idea of suffering and sovereignty, um, if God is good, why is this happening? Why is God not preventing this from happening in my life? And I think every Christian has dealt, struggled with and asked these questions. So we have, which is why it's such a classic piece of literature, is to people can resonate with it. Similarly, the book of Psalms, I don't know if you know this or not, but people generally uh, go to the Psalms when they're in times of despair. I'm not saying that's the only time they do, but... When people are in despair, where do they go? They often go to the Psalms because they connect with the emotions of the Psalms, and it's um, cathartic to them. So suffering and sovereignty. Topics of interest. Now, if you had to do a, a paper for this class, these would all be great possible topics, okay, if you had to, right? Um, so the first one – these topics are also going to be new to some of you, all right? The divine counsel is, is one of the topics. The divine counsel is the idea that there is a group of supernatural beings besides God who meet with God, okay? This is uh, a picture of, of an ancient non-biblical account okay, of this, and Dr. Michael Heiser is probably, the, to, to my knowledge, the expert in this field. Uh, I think I put the link on the page here somewhere, um, footnote 11, yes, see his, his website, thedivinecouncil.com. He has a, a blog that he runs there, he is also a, a, a scholar at Faith Life Long Life Bible uh, Software, one of their three scholars in residence, and has written extensively and has um, cataloged the largest database, three or four thousand articles 
related to the divine counsel. Um, I'm going to talk about that for, for just a, a minute, and I think I'm, I'm going to do that when we get into the actual notes, okay? The, the next topic is the kinsman and redeemer. The kinsman and redeemer topic comes up in Job 19, 25 to 27. Who, who's going to save Job? Who's going to mediate for him? Who's going to help him? That's where this comes in. He says in uh, Job 19, 25 to 27, uh, he says, But I know my living Redeemer, and he will stand on the dust at last. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet will I see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look to him, not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. And so the idea that who's going to redeem me. Now, you might know the kinsman redeemer aspect from uh, Boaz in the book of Ruth also. And then how that gets connected uh, with Jesus. So here we have Job, okay, uh, potentially the earliest book written in Scripture, all right, and <clears throat> we have the kinsman redeemer here. The next idea is the retribution principle. The retribution principle is the idea that we talked about the other day, relating to your your behavior. That if you have positive behavior, you expect um, positive things. So, positive behavior, you accept, you expect positive uh, results from it. Now, the thing is that as as Walty has summarized it for us, you reap what you sow. We're pretty good with that, right? We're all right with that. The second one is a problem. You only reap what you sow. That is going to be the crux of the argument in the book with the friends and their dialogue. The, the point is that if you rob a bank, who goes first? You reap what you sow. Okay? So let's take out the rob a bank part. You go to prison. Oh, you must have robbed a bank. You're like, what? No, I didn't rob a bank. Yeah, but you're in prison, so you must have, right? So, But the point here is that if something bad has happened to you, then it's because you've done something bad. And that is a whole underlying point that runs through the book of Job. And truth be told, we have still not freed ourselves from this bad theology. I can remember when I was a young Christian, I would um, work at uh, a telemarketing place, MCI, they don't even exist anymore. And uh, I was there with a bunch of my friends while we were in Bible college, and uh, there was this, this one friend of mine that things didn't go right, it's because he had done something wrong earlier. So I, uh, he and, and other Christians often relate this to, oh, I didn't do my devotion this morning, so that's why this happened, this happened, this happened. Like, God's just waiting for you to, to skip reading the Word so he just won't get upside your head. Like, that's not exactly how it works. Um, friend of mine, a uh, former student, actually, um, he got married, he had, he had some kids, and uh, his little girl has these health issues, and be- before he was married, he had done some things he shouldn't have been doing, and so are the little girl's health issues because he wasn't being completely faithful to God. See, when, when we start doing things like that, we're actually doing the same thing Job's friends did, and we're saying it's the retribution principle in, in force in your life, and so you're reaping this because that's what you sowed. Where the truth of the matter is, 
but it doesn't have to be because you did something wrong. Since your sin hurts other people. So if your sin hurts other people, then the flip side of that is you should be being hurt because of someone else's sin. Y'all with me on this? Right? So, that's the retribution principle. Okay? Um, the, the next idea that is a topic of interest in the book is the idea of Satan. Um, Satan, in the scriptures, is the accuser. Okay? In Job, Satan, as a proper name, appears in a couple of different places. It appears in Job 1 and 2. It appears also in Zechariah 3, 1 and 2, and in 1 Chronicles 21, 1. In all three places, he accuses someone. Okay? That's where it shows up as a proper name. Okay? We'll talk about this in a little bit, but it's actually the Satan. Okay? And it means the adversary. So in Job 1, 8, we'll come back to these in a little bit, but then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. In Job 2, 3, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? Again, no one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him without just cause. So the, the theology of, of Job and or Job's friends, I mean, and Satan. Satan says, if Job is blessed by God, then he'll be faithful. The friends say, if Job is faithful, then he'll be blessed. Or if he's unfaithful, he gets punished. Satan says, if Job is not blessed, then he won't be faithful. So th these, these are the other characters in the story and, and what they're saying about Job and why Job acts the way he, he acts. Go back to our previous conversation before the break about wisdom and wisdom. Why do you do what you do? Is, is your character consistent, or are you doing it to, to earn favor? W what is your true character? And, and that's what they're they're saying here with Job. Why does Job do what he does? Just because God blesses him. I mean, the guy's like a billionaire. That, that's that's why he loves God. Take it away. Watch what happens. That's what's going on. Sovereignty is the other aspect <coughs> that we have to deal with. In the book, the most basic question, um, I think Bill Mounts put it this way, is God worthy of trust even if we're not blessed? And I believe in God without principle. So, if he doesn't bless you, will you still trust him? Is the question. And then the, the topic of suffering. Okay? Suffering. <clears throat> Theodicy is the defense of God or vindication of God's character in light of human suffering. Okay, that's the technical term. So if you read some stuff on, on Job or God and, and sovereignty and, and the word theodicy comes up, that's what we're talking about. Um, this is different in different cultures. So I don't know if it's a tradition specific how, how it fleshes out. <clears throat> the trilemma of God in, in this case is how can he be all-powerful, good, and evil at the same time? What's going on here? Does this work? Is, is God willing to prevent evil, but he's not able? Well, that would mean that he's not, not all-powerful, so he's impotent, right? He can't stop it. Is God able to prevent evil, but he's not willing? 
so he doesn't care. He just leaves him alone. Is he able and willing? Well, the wives are evil, right? So we're back where we started, right? So these are the questions that, that are, are asked here. All you got to do is Google um, the topic or go to, like, Amazon and Google the book and see how many books are out there about why bad things happen to good people and how can God be uh, good when evil exists and all this type of stuff. Everybody from uh, all the way up to, like, N.T. Wright has books on it because it's an age-old problem. C.S. Lewis, etc. So how can God be good and powerful and allow evil and suffering in your life? As I mentioned, what Mount says, he argues that the central question is, is God worthy of trust? And what the book of Job does is rather than explore this problem systematically, the book of Job explores it dramatically and in narrative. Okay, And that's what I was talking about before with the speculative aspect of the wisdom as well. So no Bible book more fully teaches that human beings who live uprightly before God may experience suffering that they will never understand in this life. That's the mystery of God. When I was a young Christian, I wanted answers to everything. And I would argue with you about the right answers. As I as I matured, I'm okay with mystery. Like, it's God. Like, if, if there's not some mystery, then I, I, it's not God. Like, if you can figure everything out that he's doing. So, that's some topics, okay? The structure of the book. Alright? The, the structure. The poetry of the book is framed, it's book-ended, with prose narratives, okay? So what that means is it starts out with prose narrative and it ends with prose narrative. Prose and narrative I'm using synonymously, okay? So you can look at the Job at a Glance chart that's on um, the next page in just a moment. So what this means is that you have five areas, okay? But the structure basically is a chiastic structure, okay? So this goes back to our, our parallel thought stuff, right? So you could actually have an entire book structure in a parallel form, all right? Now, it comes, the word chiasm comes from uh, the Greek, okay? It's an X in ours, but it's a CH in Greek. So, chiasm or chiasm, you also see it uh, chiasmus, okay? You can write either way. I do the shortened form usually. So, it's an inverted parallelism. So you can see on the screen the explanation for the inversion. It's A, B, C in the middle, and then B, A. So your, your Bs are on your one line of the X, and the A's are on the other plane of the X. All right. So there's multiple ways of, of writing this or explaining it. So in um, their book, I think this is Old Testament today, Walton and Hill, um, they put it this way, which is the same thing. So I, I'm just turning it on its side, basically. So instead of with the X, it was A, B, C, uh, B, A, right? And that's how you get your X. Okay, so with this, it's A, B, C, B, A. And just like in math, it, they use primes, prime numbers, to, to mean it's the, uh, the mirror image of it. Remember, they don't have to be identical. It's similar thoughts. Okay, so for you to remember this, I think this, I think this one is the easiest way for the Book of Job for you to get the whole, the whole book in a nutshell. 
okay? If you just think of it as a, as a triangle, you still got the same thing, okay? You're going A, B, C, B, A. So you got prologue and epilogue. You got dialogues. Technically, this is probably more monologues over here, dialogue and monologues, okay? And the climax, we looked at the 28 Appeals of Origins Wisdom, okay? So for you, I want you to be able to know the structure of the book and that, in my opinion, is, is probably the easiest way. Any questions on that? That makes sense? Right? Prologue, epilogue, dialogue, and chapter 28, Fear of the Lord's Wisdom, right? The Wisdom Interlude. So the full chiastic structure, <coughs> well, I shouldn't say full. It's not really full. But this one goes through F. You're like, how can you have an ABC and an ABCDEF? Well, it just depends on how much you want to drill down. Okay? One's more general than the other. Um, I'm going to give you a handout for you actually to refer to that has the structure of Job on it. And it's set up slightly different, but it's much more detailed. So if you look at this, it actually does still have the chiasm indicated for you. Okay, look at the, the black out boxes, okay? So you have at the top, prologue and epilogue. That's your A and A prime. You have the dialogue and monologues. That's your B and B prime. And if you look right in the middle, okay, they don't have another blacked out box, but what do they have right in the middle? Job on true wisdom, chapter 28. That is your C, okay? That's the turning point, the fulcrum of your chiastic structure. So the reason that um, I like this chart and I, I copied it out for you is because it has some breakdowns. And the three cycles of speeches that we'll talk about later, uh, it has them broken down for you here. And then over here, the speeches by Elihu are also broken down for you, uh, including chapter numbers. So I think it, it gives a good uh, visual and a good breakdown of the book. Any questions related to that? Okay, so a good chart is worth its money, right? Sometimes a book is worth the price of the book for one page. So, this is on the internet, that's fine. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, well, let's have a quiz. What are the five?
So the Job at a Glance chart, this comes out of uh, Nelson's uh, book on uh, charts and maps. And they don't have it set up quite the same way. Uh, but if you, you look at it, you can see that it is very similar. You have uh, on one chart uh, the location, the time period. You have the topics. You also have the genre. If you look on the left side, you've got focus, reference, division, and then topic. And then if you go across to the right, it's divided in half, and it says prose, poetry, and plays. Okay? So it provides that information for you as well. You can see the scientific debate in there. Um, and then so it's just a, um, another one piece chart for you. The three cycles of debates and Job's um, response to the bottom. You ask me, is my judge, the Lord is my judge, and the Lord is my refuge, and how they play out. And we'll talk about those cycles a little bit later. All right. Any questions on that? That's the intro to Job. then let's jump into the job notes okay i think that's page 21 i didn't have mine i tried to keep everything that's actually one of the reasons i decided not to delete a whole bunch of stuff and then students notes different page numbers which makes it a little more difficult for me to tell you where we're at if you get lost all right the job notes so what we want to do now is we're going to uh, jump into the scriptures let me make a, a quick comment on a, a book title for you. Um, the Bible Reader's Companion, your guide to every chapter of the Bible by Lawrence R. Richards. Um, Lawrence R. Richards, or Larry Richards, as he sometimes puts his name, I, I don't know how many books he's written. It's like dozens and dozens and dozens. And his stuff is usually pretty clear, insightful, and, and easy to understand. So you can look at this next time we have a break or at the end if you want. But this is not every single chapter. So, for instance, on Job, he's got a, he's got a page on uh, Job 1 and 2, and then Job 3, then Job 4 through 7, etc. So, but you can see, it's about the size, give or take, of a Bible. But uh, what he'll do is, he'll give you an intro, he'll give you the book at a glance, which includes key people and key events, where it took place, date and authorship, so kind of a, a survey type thing. But then, um, it's kind of like a mini commentary. So, you go to a page, like, uh, I'm on numbers 1 to 4 now. There's a chapter summary, a key verse, a personal application, key concepts, and then there's some commentary notes here, kind of like you would find on a study Bible, but uh, probably more in total. And there's some drawings throughout it. So I'm uh, referencing that only in the aspect that, like, if you want uh, an easy, handy-dandy, like, book that kind of has something for everything, kind of, that might be a good one. You could probably get it for, like, 10 bucks or something. So, Job notes, prologue, okay, prologue, setting the stage. As we get into this, <coughs> this chart comes from uh, John Stevenson. Again, you have the overview of the book. You can see, uh, kind of based on how he, he made his boxes here, that there's this A, B, C, B, A, again, the chiastic structure here. And 
I want to point out the bottom part, the prose section and the poetry section. So I've mentioned a couple of times that it starts and ends with prose, and in the middle is all poetry, all right? So what should you expect to find in these sections? Uh, the prose section is, is, is uh, plain language and written in pure Hebrew. The poetry is highly ornate and contains many expressions of characteristics of Chaldean. So the, the culture, in other words. So there's cultural aspects that we have to be aware of. And highly ornate, so it, it's flowery, it's metaphorical, it's etc. So that's what you should expect as we're reading it. All right, we look at the prologue, and we see that uh, the setting, setting the stage is what the prologue is all about. So the first couple chapters are just setting the stage for what's going to take place in the rest of the book. As I mentioned earlier, we get information that Job does not get, okay? Letter A, the person of Job. Okay, according to the text, okay, says in Job 1.1, it says, There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned <laughs> away from evil. Bless you. All right, look at the characteristics, the words that are used. Perfect integrity. Okay, feared God, turned away from evil. So already we have this idea in Job of perfect with this translation or blameless with another translation. We tend to think of perfect as you never miss anything. Like if you're a perfect shot, that means you made every basket, right? So the question is, is that what we're talking about? And the answer, the answer is no, we're not. So when Job is perfect, does it mean that Job never sins? It can't be, right? Romans 2.23, all have sinned, right? So what does it mean that he's perfect then? So this is where, see, I, I don't know if you do all this stuff, Kevin. Well, you actually don't have to because there's over 200 English translations, so we can just look at some other translations. And so you have blameless or some other words like that. He's a man of perfect integrity. Um, let me jump to the New Testament as a, a quick reference. This is not up there, but, you know, Jesus says you have to be perfect, like my Father in heaven is perfect, right? The book of James says, depending on your translation, that the goal of James is, is for you to be complete and perfect, not lacking anything. So, again, well, what is it they're talking about, this, this idea of perfect? Does it mean that you never sin? No, it doesn't. What it means is that you are mature, that you are blameless, that, that your whole way of life is focused on following after God. Okay? Noah was blameless in God's sight, right? Does that mean Noah didn't sin? Is that why he got on the ark? No. Um, Abraham. Um, all these people. So, Job. He's not sinless, but he's single-minded. Okay? And he's talking about this maturity that James is talking about. His life is given over to God, and that's how he runs his life. In Job chapter 1, um, verse 8, and chapter 2, verse 3, we find this supported by what God says about Job. He says the same thing. So, is Job's words enough? Is his friend's words enough? Well, God says, listen, my son. Nope, sorry, that's Proverbs. In one eight, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity. 
who fears God and turns away from evil. So God is making the same claim about Jonah. His whole life is focused on God, and he follows after God. Letter B, as we're looking at setting up the stage here, the possessions of Job. We read in verse 2, he says that he had seven sons and three daughters. Okay, that's it. A few short words. Seven sons and three daughters. Well, this adds up to ten, okay? Numbers such as seven and three indicate the completeness of the blessing that Job experienced. You can also, also look at the number ten throughout Scripture. All right, so there's a symbolic aspect to numbers in the Bible. The size of Job's herds was enormous. Aristotle claims the Arabs had as many as 3,000 camels, just for the number listed here. The numbers can be compared to the 3,000 sheep and the 1,000 goats of Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. So you look at different things historically, and you look at other things in the Bible, and you see, what, what is the point? Why is he telling us this? Well, obviously he's wealthy. Okay? Obviously God has poured out his blessings on him. And so that is part of it. And then these numbers, 7 and 3, and then together 10, the idea of completeness. Like, his life is great. Everything's in order. It's, it's looking great. Um, the next point is the profanity. The profanity. What do I mean this by this? I mean in verse 5, he says his sons used to have banquets at each house in turn, and they would send an invitation to the three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job saw, perhaps my children have sinned, having hurt God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. I'm sorry, I did actually have that in here to put up on the screen. So, What's going on? Well, they're having parties. They're having feasts. They're having celebrations, okay? And at these feasts and celebrations, they also in, invite the girls over. And so, Job is afraid that they might have done something wrong. Now, what does he mean by this? Okay, it says curse God. This is a phrase that comes up a couple times in Job. All right? But literally, this is kind of a, a weird thing, it literally says bless God. That's what the Hebrew says. It doesn't say curse God. It says bless God. Now, there's various thoughts as to why that is. Some, some have argued that the Jews would not put the word curse right next to the word God. However, what it basically means is curse God. But I'm just telling you, that's not actually what it says. So, it actually says, bless God. It's a euphemism. It means, like, blessed out. So, it's like someone says, oh, that was a real blessing. What do they really mean? Yes, they're being sarcastic. It was not a real blessing, okay? Or he sure blessed my socks off, or wasn't that a blessing? You know, all these things we say sarcastically, okay? Um, it's the same thing. We're using the word, but do we mean blessing? No, we don't mean blessing. And so you have the same thing in Scripture. And so this idea makes it uh, all the more important that we, we study even more and, and we, we read people who can understand the language. Bless God in their hearts is what the Hebrew text literally means. The context indicates the opposite point, the curse is intended. The same verse is also, or same verb is also used with this encouragement in 111 and 25 and 29 and 1 Kings 21.10. So in, in 111, 
It says, stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns. This is Satan talking. And he will surely curse you to your face. But it's actually not curse. It's he'll bless you to your face. He'll bless you out to your face. He will sarcastically bless you out. He'll curse you. Okay, that, that's what's being said here. Um, in chapter 2, verse 5. Stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will again surely curse you to your face. In 2.9 also, his wife says, you still retain your integrity. Curse God and die. Bless him out and die. That's it. Be done with him. Notice how it's tied to his integrity. So, we move on from that. So, Job is a man that's blameless. He has integrity. He seeks after God. And so, he does, he does not do these things. His wife says to curse God and die. He does not view life in that way. So no matter what came his way, no matter what happened in his life, that couldn't be his response. And that's part of what the accuser, Satan, is trying to get him to do throughout the book. Does that make sense to you guys? Okay. So this play on the word bless in the description and dialogue of the prologue creates irony with the conclusion of the epilogue in Job 42, where Job's three friends are instructed that they are the ones in need of Job's intercessory prayer because they have spoken foolishly about God. Letter D. Again, we're still looking at setting the stage up. Okay, The personal name of God. Yahweh. In chapter 1, verse 6. It says, one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, and Satan also came with them. There's a long history of, of, of Lord and Jehovah and the King James, etc., that we don't really have, have time to go into. But the idea is that behind this is actually uh, the word Yahweh. the word that's there, um, that really is not the same as, as Jehovah. So, Yahweh is this, Jehovah is this, and what they did is they, they took letters out of Adonai and they put them in there to make Jehovah. So that they didn't have to say they say it when they shouldn't. That's how that transpired. So, the name is Yahweh. It is found primarily in the prose section. There's only one exception. It's in the beginning and the end, and it's in 12, 9. Chapter 12, verse 9 of Job is the only place in the poetry section where this actually occurs. Which of all these which of all these does not know that the hand of Yahweh has done this? Everywhere else, <coughs> pro section, you, you see the name of God, Yahweh. All right. Letter E is going to bring us back to the divine council stuff, okay? This is the pantheon <coughs> of God, or the divine council. Now, <coughs> who, who's heard of this before? Anybody heard of this concept? Nobody, okay? Okay, so this is new, so it's going to be strange. And uh, it might be confusing. That's all fine. Um, the Divine Council, as I mentioned, um, Heiser, 
Dr. Mike Heiser is kind of like the expert in this field, but you'll also find it in John Walton's writings and other people that deal with the ancient Near East uh, and the Bible. Member of divine council who indicts the, the malefactors, okay, the people that are against God. So what you have here is the verse. Let me put the verse back up again. Okay, 1-6. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Okay? Well, sons of God, which is here, it's also in several other passages in Scripture. This is in number three on page 22. Um, this verse kind of sets the scene for the divine council, a concept well known in the ancient Near East literature. In polytheistic religions, the divine beings met as a council with the chief deity as chairperson. That's what we saw in that image I showed you earlier. There's a guy in a chair, a throne, and all these other other lesser beings were around him. They were meeting together a divine council. In Mesopotamia, you have this going on. The council is known especially from the Ugaritic literature where the deities are called sons of El. Okay? Now, let me just throw another thing in here. Okay? So we've talked about Yahweh being God's name, right? That's his personal name, his covenant name, right? Yahweh. So, um, El or Elohim, okay? Him is plural. Okay? That's what I am at the end of the Hebrew word is, is plural, means four. Okay? So, <coughs> now, these words, both of them, El and Elohim, can be used throughout Scripture to refer to God, to refer to people, to refer to angels. So the word in and of itself, okay, doesn't have to refer to God the Creator. The context determines what it's referring to. Alright? So in the Ugaritic literature, they have the, the word El also, okay? Because remember, the the Hebrew literature comes from the ancient Near Eastern context. And in that context, as languages develop, they're going to share different characteristics and traits. And so that's what happens here. Um, so, but the Ugaritic also, they have a polytheistic group of, of gods, if you will, that are meeting together as well. Um, if you look at 1 Kings 22, 19, uh, should not be on the screen either. 1 Kings 22. It says, Micaiah says, Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and the whole heavenly host standing by him at his right hand and at his left hand. And he says, Who's going to entice Ahab to march up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one was saying this and another was saying that. So what's, what's going on here? God is with a bunch of, I don't know what, right? And they're having a meeting of sorts, talking about what to do in this situation. Okay, now, to be honest, as, as Christians, like, this probably makes us uncomfortable. Like, what, what do you mean? God's having a conversation with some people trying to figure out what to do? Like, what? That's not how God works. So, what is, what is going on with this whole situation? It's also in Psalm 82.1. God sits on his throne, Daniel chapter 7 you can look at, um, the hosts of heaven, the gods, etc. Anytime you see these phrases, it's possible that's what's being referred to. 
In Job, there is not much of the original divine counsel on the sons of God or his servants uh, presenting themselves, standing before him, or serving in authority. So you have all these different aspects of divine counsel. Now, it would really take us the rest of the semester if we wanted to like nail down this divine counsel stuff. Like I said, Kaiser's got three to 4,000 articles that he's compiled about this in ancient Near East and kind of biblical text of, of where they are and what's going on. The Hebrew phrase used here, I'm on page 21 um, at the bottom on the E, number E. The Hebrew phrase used, B'nai Elohim, which may be literally rendered as sons of God, refers to spiritual beings who in this instance are part of God's counsel, the divine counsel. For this reason, some translations render it uh, here and elsewhere as angels. Okay? Uh, that's coming out of the Faith Life Study Bible from uh, John Barry. And I'm not sure why our, our TV screen is here. Okay, so the the divine counsel aspect. So um, Heiser has this this article, and in it he has this diagram. Okay, and this refers to the the word Elohim and how it can be used. Okay, where it can be used, how it's used in Scripture, and so. It's used for all these different areas of being. All right? Of course, Elohim is used for God also. Now, Yahweh is not used for God. So, he is separate and he is distinct. So, they're supernatural. Okay? This here, depending on how he's classifying that may not be, but supernatural is supernatural, supernatural, right? They're all not of humanity. You all with me on this? So we already believe, I mean, Christians believe in Abraham David, right? So this is really part of the group that is being referred to here. We haven't gotten into the Satan aspect yet, but you probably already hold probably that, that the Satan that you know about is the fallen angel, right? Supernatural being that's not of humanity. So that fits into this idea that there's this group of people. Now, Kaiser and others are not saying that these are people are equal with God. We have this idea in our language and in our culture that we have reserved the, the English word G-O-D only for Yahweh. When the reality is that's it's not true, right? Because if you check in the Bible, God, which is El or Elohim, is used for kings, people, rulers, angels, Etc. Are you all with me on this? So we're just used to the, the, the place where we are like, what are you talking about? Is because we're so used to reserving this word for God. Are you with the reality? Um, does that make sense? Anybody totally confused? Are we thinking like heretic yet? So, alright. Alright, so. Alright, the next one. Okay, this is going to mess with you a little bit too, probably. So, letter F, the prosecutor of or for God. So, in 1-6 again. So, 
One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. All right? The prosecutor was your blank. The Hebrew uh, word used here, Satan, literally means the accuser or the adversary. That's why I put prosecutor, because all accused, right? It's adversary, though. He is likely acting as a prosecutor in a courtroom-like scene. In the Old Testament, the term Satan is often used to describe an adversary in general, whether human or divine. So let's look, flip with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. Excuse me. 1 Kings 11. Verses uh, 23, 25. God raised up Rezan. Son of Eliada, Eliada, (laughs) as an enemy against Solomon. Raisin had fled from his master, Hadazar, Hadadazar, king of Zobah, and gathered men to himself. He became captain of a raiding party when David killed the Zobites. Zobites. (laughs) He went to Damascus, he lived there, and he became king of Damascus. Rezin was Israel's enemy throughout Solomon's reign, adding to the trouble Hadad had caused. He ruled over Aram, Assyria, but he loathed Israel. Okay? So, in here, the adversary is this phrase, Satan. Okay? Now, are we talking about supernatural people here? Supernatural beings? No, we're not. We're human beings. That's an adversary. Um... In the Hebrew text of Numbers 22-22, the angel of Yahweh is also described as a Satan. Satan is what we say. Satan, Hebrew word, right? In Zechariah 3, 1-2, Zechariah 3, 1-2, the Satan functions much like he does in Job. He stands before the angel of Yahweh and accuses the high priest Joshua. In both Zechariah and Job, Satan includes the definite article, the, which grammatically rules out its use as a proper name. Instead, it should be understood as a title, the accuser. Like, you don't say, I mean, you call me Kevin, you don't say the Kevin, right? There's there's one person we do that to nowadays, I guess, but the Donald, but everybody else we don't say the in front of, right? It's just, it's your name. And so, in these places, it has the definite article. Definite article means the word the. So it's not actually just Satan, it's the Satan. That's why that sounds weird. You're right, because Satan's not human. It's adversary. It's the adversary. So the adversary shows up. Elsewhere, uh, the term used here describes people searching for something. In Jeremiah and Amos, it was 12. The image of the Satan figure wandering the earth looking for someone to accuse is similar to the New Testament depiction of the devil in 1 Peter 5a. So the other thing that you have to understand is your idea of Satan, okay, evolved. I question the word evolved, but whatever. That's what happened, right? Evolved. So what I mean by that is the way you think of Satan is not what they saw in Genesis of Satan or Job or in Exodus, okay? Same thing with heaven. When you think of heaven, that that is not what they thought of back in the Old Testament days. Why? Well, for one reason, progressive revelation, right? They didn't have as much information revealed by God to them. So one of the reasons that we have a better understanding is God has revealed more to us. Second reason is different cultural context. They thought differently about things than we do. So with those two things in mind, we have to understand 
that the idea of heaven and hell and the idea of Satan and his adversarial role against God's kingdom has evolved or has been uh, further revealed to us through the pages of Scripture. So, Satan has an interesting, number four, page 23, uh, if only limited history in the Hebrew Bible. The concept is not as developed in the OT as it is not yet the devil or the demonic being is found later in Judaism and Christianity. So the Hebrew word does not denote evil as such, but can merely mean an opponent, as in Numbers 22-23, Psalms 109-6, etc. The word occurs only in three contexts in the Old Testament as personified, 14 times in Job, and in a post-exilic text. So that's the, that's the places that it shows up, and those three times that we already talked about is where it is the accuser there. So in Job, as in Zechariah, the individual is merely the accuser, not a proper name. So when we read it, and your translation says that Satan shows up, I don't know that that's really the best translation. Who shows up? The accuser shows up. Well, who's the accuser? Great question, but it's not necessarily synonymous with what we always think of when we think of Satan, right? So that's the question for the text. Like, okay, the accuser. Well, who's the accuser? What does that mean? Good question. Okay, let's study it out. Um, so... Number seven. I'll repeat again. In Job, as in Zechariah, the individual is merely the accuser, okay? So, there might actually be a whole whole uh, paragraph that's repeated right there. If you flip your page, page 24, you have an entire uh, article out of... Um, I think it's from the NLT Study Bible. Looks like I didn't put the reference on here. On Satan and the adversary. And so he says, The book of Job includes the Satan, or Satan, among the heavenly court. The Hebrew word Satan refers to an adversary or an accuser in court. They reference the same places we already looked. God sometimes appoints angels as adversaries for righteous judgment and opposition to evildoers. Numbers 22, that's the Balaam incident. The Old Testament hints at the accuser's demonic character, but between the time of the OT and the NT, Satan became identified with the serpent in Eden. The New Testament refers to the chief demon, the Satan, in Revelation 20, verse 2, along with numerous other names, such as Devil, Tempter, Beelzebub, Bilius, Demon, Evil One, Belial, Deceiver, Great Seven-Headed Dragon, etc. Satan incited David's census, tempted and betrayed Jesus, desired to test Peter as he had tested Job, enslaved sinners, and deceitfully opposed God's people. The adversary of God's people will be overcome in the end when God defeats and imprisons him. So you have an adversary who is in a, in a council meeting with God, and God brings up his blameless servant, Job, which then begins the attack on Job. So who brought up Job? God brought up Job. So the adversary is there looking for somebody to accuse. have again, uh, this is just the, the Hebrew word, satan. So this right here is the definite article, the, in our passage. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and satan, or it's really ha-satan, the satan, also came among them. Job 1 verse 8, the Lord said to Satan, satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. He fears God. 
In 1, 9 for 11, this is where we get his response. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions, have increased in the land, but put forth your hand and touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. The challenge is, you've blessed him, and that's why he acts like he is. He's blameless because you've blessed him. You take that away, he'll curse you, okay? He'll bless you out. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so you've read the, the book, and you know the disaster that happens. The Sabaeans attacked and took oxen and donkeys in 13 to 15. Fire from heaven burned up sheep and servants in 16. Chaldeans took camels in 17. The wind caused houses to collapse on sons and daughters in 18 and 19. He's losing everything that he has. In 20 to 22, it says, Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. Now, except for the last word, you probably all understand it. Those are all actions of mourning. He was in despair and grief. But what did he do? He worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. That's a high standard. I have not had all those things happen to me. But he's had happen to him. And it's in the text, it looks like he's a better worshiper than I am. Right? He continues on in 2-3. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Again, there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. 2, 4 to 6. Skin for skin. Yep, all that a man has he'll give for his life. How many of you would do anything to not be sick? Isn't that one of the things where you like, fear the most? You know, I don't want the cancer, I don't want sickness, I don't want, right? It's the same. He'll, he'll give up. However, put forth your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. He went out from the presence of the Lord, and he smote Job with sore boils, and his soul was sick to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. That's a picture we saw in the beginning. His wife comes and says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Good night, man. Curse God and die. There it is again. Bless God out. Literally. But he said, Your speech is one of the foolish women's speech. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So, up through here, there's a couple of points we want to make about this adversary. Okay? Does the adversary have unlimited powers? No, where's his, where's his get approval or power from him? He only gets it from God. Okay? So, first off, the adversary did not bring the name of Job up. God brought the name of Job up. Okay? As one of his uh, angst and focuses, if you will. Then the adversary has to get permission, and he is limited each time to what God says. Now, God does raise the limit each time, okay? He gives him more and more power and authority. But each time, the limits have to be raised. So this brings in, yes, Job is suffering, 
But this also brings in our other S word, right? The sovereignty of God. See, who is the one really in charge? It's Yahweh. Now, it still doesn't answer our question. Why is he doing this? Why is Yahweh allowing this to happen? Okay? As we finish the book, does that question ever completely get answered? Not yet. So, what do we learn from that? The why question must really get interesting here. Because, as God shows up in the world and says to Job, are you God? Did you create this? Can you take care of Did Jesus take care of Do you know what's going on? So, God is God and he is sovereign. And so there's an element where we have to leave that to him. Because he doesn't give us an answer to all of those different things. Alright. You want a break? No? Yes? Yes? No? You all good? Alright. If you're all good, then we'll hit the dialogues. So, in this section, um, we're going to run into Job's three friends, alright? So, here's just a picture of uh, some friends out in the area, kind of like they would have been, and I don't know really where they sat around and talked, but there's some people out in the Arabian area, right? So, we already looked at the fact that there's going to be these three cycles, okay? So, if you, if you have uh, this chart or the other one you got the three cycles that are going to take place here. These guys are going to come. Now, the interesting thing is, did they start speaking right away? No, they didn't. Okay, we can actually learn something from that, right? So, let me go back to Job, last king. Alright. So, the first couple of chapters, we have... Uh, the, the setup here, okay? So you've got the adversary, and you've got God, and they're dealing with this situation. This is information that Job does not have, okay? Then everything starts going through his life. Everything starts crumbling down around him. And it says in chapter 3, uh, verse 1, it says, After this, Job began to speak, and he cursed the day that he was born. Now, did he curse God? No, he did not. Things had gotten so bad, though, that he desired and he wished that he hadn't been born. All right? So, this poetic speech, all through here, so I don't know how your Bible is set up, but if it's anything like mine, they, they, uh, they put it in like poetry form. So this is all poetry. We, ha we have switched from, like, they, they actually try to help you out with this. This is all narrative text, right? And then suddenly, it switches to this. You can visually see there's a difference, right? We went from prose uh, to poetry. So Job has the opening speech, all right, in chapter 3. In chapter 4, Eliphaz shows up, all right? Now, in these speeches, there's these cycles, the three cycles, there's going to be some things that, that take place. The first cycle, okay, page 25 on your notes, cycle number one, defending the retribution principle. All right? Now, remember, what's the retribution principle? And you only reap what you sow, okay? So... Excuse me, because Job is reaping a whirlwind of punishment, he must have done what? Sin. Okay, he must have. So, we're not going to read through the, the whole thing here. We're just going to pick out some verses to grasp what they're saying, what their argument is. So, 
Eliphaz, in chapter 4, verse 7, he says this. He says, consider, who has perished when he was innocent? Where have the honest been destroyed? So, in other words, he's saying, listen, something bad's happening. You must have done something. Because the honest don't get destroyed. The honest get what? What happens to the honesty? Retribution principle. They get blessed. The honest people get blessed. Exactly. Who gets destroyed? Yeah, evil people get destroyed. You're getting destroyed, Job, so you've got to be doing evil. That's how this works. So that's that's what Eliphaz says. So that's his, his first friend, okay? Then we go to Bildad, okay? Skip over to chapter 8, verse 4. Since your children sinned against him, he gave them over to their rebellion. What a comforting friend. The reason your kids are all dead, Job, is because they did what? They sinned. I'm sorry, buddy. Yeah, maybe you should have raised them better. Maybe they shouldn't have sinned. Bunch of rebellious punks. God killed them all. That's what he says. Retribution principle, Job. Zophar, chapter 11, verses 5 through 9. But if only God would speak and declare his case against you, he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know then that God has chosen to overlook some of your sins. Can you fathom the depths of God or discover the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They're deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Now a couple of things. First off, did you catch some of the imagery that I showed you earlier with the cosmos? That was really fast, wasn't it? <laughs> That's great. I teach them right in a row. I get confused. Those of you that were in my other class, three of you, um, do, do you see some of that imagery that's in there? Deeper than Sheol, higher than the heavens, this type of stuff. That's what's going on in their minds. But back to our class in Job. Um, what he says here is, hey, you must have been a sinner, buddy. And God has even overlooked some of your sins. So, hey, it could have been worse. So one, two, three. They all say basically the same thing. All right? The retribution principle, they're defending it. All right, so that's that's round one, right? But we come back around. Job's going to defend himself. No, I'm, I'm still, it's not that. I, I have integrity. Okay, I, I have not done what you say. Okay? Look at what Job says in chapter 12. He says, uh, no doubt you are the people. Yep, you're, you're the best counselors, man. You're it. And wisdom is going to die with you. When you die, there's no more wisdom. Obviously, you guys have it all. But listen to this, verse 3. I also do have a mind, and I'm not inferior to you. Who doesn't know the things that you're talking about? I know all about the retribution principle. I know how this all works. I'm a laughing stock to my friends by calling on God. Who answers me? The righteous and the upright man is a laughing stock. The one who is at ease holds calamity and contempt and thinks it is prepared for those whose feet are slipping. The tents of robbers are safe, and those who provoke God are secure. God's power provides this. <coughs> so even, even the things that shouldn't be, evil are doing okay, evil people are doing okay, it's still, it's even God's power that's, that's working that out for them. But ask the animals, they'll instruct you. Ask the birds of the sky, they'll tell you. Speak of the earth, it will instruct you. Let the fish of the sea inform you. So even creation gives you wisdom. Which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? The life of every living thing is in his hand, as well as the breath of all mankind. Doesn't the ear test words as the palate tastes food? 
Wisdom is found with the elderly in understanding counsel among life. Wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are his. Whatever he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Whatever he imprisons cannot be released. When he withholds the waters, everything dries up. When he releases them, they destroy the land. True wisdom and power belong to him. So Job is going on and on about these aspects of wisdom. So he understands the retribution principle. He understands that all creation is like sings the praises of God. That there's a wisdom found in, in all these aspects of what God has created. It says in chapter 13, Look, my eyes have seen all this. My ears have heard and understand it. Everything you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. Yeah, I'd rather argue my case with God. Verse 23. I prefer to speak to the Almighty and argue my case before God. You can coat the truth with lies. You are all worthless doctors. If only you would shut up and let that be your wisdom. Okay? This is just round one. So then he, he has his argument in verse number six. Here's my argument. Listen to my defense. Okay, would, would you testify unjustly on God's behalf or speak deceitfully for him? Would you show partiality to him or argue this case in his defense? Would it go well if he examined you? Could you deceive him as you would deceive a man? So he, he speaks all through here, says you should be quiet, etc., etc. Verse 23, how many iniquities and sins have I committed? Reveal to me my transgression and sin. So everything is being destroyed because I'm sinning. So tell me what my sin is. Oh yeah, I forgot, you couldn't tell me what my sin is. Well, why not? You're so wise. He continues on, all the way through the end of chapter 14. Then we get to cycle number two in chapter 15. Cycle number two is scaring Job to repent. So the retribution principle didn't work. So we, we got to raise it up a, a bar, okay? Ratchet it up another notch. And so here, they're trying to scare Job, okay? Because just the, the plain logic of the principle didn't work. Eliphaz goes first. Chapter 15, verses 20 to 26. Did the wicked man writhe in pain all his days? Few years are stored up for the ruthless. Dreadful sounds fill his ears. When he's at peace, a robber attacks him. He doesn't believe he'll return from darkness. He, he's destined for the sword. He wanders about for food, saying, Where is it? He knows the day of darkness is at hand. Trouble and distress terrify him, overwhelming him like a king prepared for battle. For he has stretched out his hand against God and has arrogantly opposed the Almighty. Who's he talking about? Yeah. He rushes headlong at him with his thick studded shield. Shield. So, Job, you're this guy. You're, you're arrogant. You're attacking God. You're, you're on the wrong side. Wake up, man. You're going to be knocked down. Well, Job replies. And then Bildad comes. So, chapter 18, verses 2 and 5. He says, how long until you stop talking? Show some sense, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle, as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, should the earth be abandoned on your account, or a rock be removed from its place? Yes, the light of the wicked is extinguished. The flame of his fire does not glow. What's he saying here? So Job, you're going to have your life knocked out of you. Well, where, where's that phrase come from? It comes from the idea that no life, no light, you're dead. What's he be saying here? Job, the, the judgment's going to come. You should be terrified of what God's going to do to you. So far, chapter 20, verse 6. He says, Though his arrogance reaches heaven and his head touch the clouds, he will vanish forever like his own dung. Those who know him will ask, where is he? Job, you're reaching up to heaven, but you're arrogant. You're going to vanish. No one's going to hear from you again. You're going to die, buddy. Verse 11 to 20. 
His bones may be full of youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the grave. Though evil tastes sweet in his mouth, he conceals it under his tongue. Though he cherishes it and will not let it go, but keeps it in his mouth, yet the food in his stomach turns into cobra's venom inside of him. He swallows wealth, but he must vomit it up. God will force it from his stomach. He will suck the poison of cobras. A viper's fangs will kill him. He will not enjoy the stream, the rivers flowing with honey and cream. He must return the fruit of his labor without consuming it. He doesn't enjoy the profits from his trading, for he oppressed and abandoned the poor. He seized a house he did not build. Pay attention to verse 19 here and following. Because his appetite is never satisfied, he does not escape his desires. Nothing is left for him to consume, therefore his prosperity will not last. He's saying in verse 19 that not only is, is Job a sinner, but he's oppressed and abandoned the poor. He's stolen houses. Now, earlier, and in the, in the text elsewhere, we read that Job has done the opposite. He's clothed the, 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 he's clothed the naked and he's fed the poor. Here they're accusing him of stealing and going against God's basic principles of loving your neighbor. So, that is cycle two, scaring Job into repentance. It says in verse 23, if you read that, God will send his burning anger against him and raining it down on him while he is eating. And then he talks about, if you, if you escape from this, God will do this. If you escape from this, God will do this. Verse 29, this is the wicked man's lot from God, the inheritance that God ordained for him. So, cycle one, defending the retribution principle. Cycle two, scaring Job into repentance. That didn't work either. Cycle number three, accusing Job directly. Accusing Job directly. So, cycle one, I do have these up on the screen, was defending the retribution principle. Cycle two was scaring Job to repent. And cycle three that we're now on is accusing Job directly. So, Eliphaz starts out in, in chapter 22. Can a man be of any use to God? Can even a wise man be of use to him? Does it delight the Almighty, Almighty if you're righteous? Does he profit if you're perfect? In your behavior, does he correct you and take you to court because of your piety? Isn't your wickedness abundant and aren't your iniquities endless? Verse number five. Your iniquities or sin is endless. Verse six. You took collateral from your brothers without cause, stripping off their clothes and leaving them naked. You gave no water to the thirsty and you withheld food from, from the famished. While the land belongs to a powerful man and an influential man lives on it, you sent widows away empty-handed and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore, snares surround you. So, basically, you violated the basic tenets of, of God's law, love your neighbor. You didn't take care of the people that were uh, the weakest, they had no one to provide or protect them, widows, fatherless, children, etc. You didn't take care of them, and so this is coming upon you. Now, where do they get this information, especially since Job has said earlier, you all know that I've done these things, these righteous things. So, some would argue that he's lying now, like they're literally just making up stuff. We can't find anything? Okay, we'll make something up. Right, that's what they do to Jesus, right? So, Bildad speaks in 25, verse 6. Now, if, if you're looking at this with me, what do you immediately notice when we get to chapter 25? It's very short. Six verses. Six verses. And in verse 6, he says, well, I guess we need to go before that. I'll just read it. Verse 2, dominion and dread belong to him, the one who established harmony in the heavens. Can his troops be numbered? Does his light not shine on everyone? How can a person be justified before God? How can one born of woman be pure? 
If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less a man who is a maggot and the son of a man who is a worm? So, wh what does God think of you, Job? What do we think of you, Job? You're a maggot. <laughs> right? So, that's Bildad, okay? And then, guess what you don't find? Zophar doesn't speak. One of the things that has been argued with these cycles is that they get shorter. And especially this third cycle, they've run out of steam. Like, there's nothing else to say. So they've defended the retribution principle. They've tried to scare Job into repenting. And they've accused Job directly. Like, what else can you do? And so they end it. Like, they have nothing else to say. Because there is nothing else to say. They've, they've tried everything. So, <coughs> um, Stevenson puts it a little differently than, than what I just gave it to you as. But it should come up here in just a second. He lists the first, the second, and, and the third round. There you go. He lists them like this. He says in the first round, <coughs> Eliphaz says, are the innocent destroyed? He says, like, that, that's philosophy speaking. Build as sinners need to repent. Like, that's history. We know that all through history, right? Sinners sin, and sinners get the retribution principle handed back to them, right? So far, bad things happen to the wicked, orthodoxy. Now, I think those are good, but I think you need to realize that underlying all three of them is the retribution principle. Like, if, if, you, if you don't understand the retribution principle, then really it, it doesn't go with that. So, and then he continues on in the second round. Is it, it is evil to speak against God. God punishes the wicked, and God judges the wicked. So, in every one of these, all three friends are basically calling him what? Yeah, you're wicked. And everybody, and I mean everybody, knows what God does to the wicked, right? So, this is why I say they're trying to scare Job into repentance. And on the third round, you notice, first off, Zophar has nothing to say. Repent and you'll be restored. How can a man be, be just before God? So, <coughs> again, he offers uh, repentance up from Eliphaz. But the end result of both of these is, again, you're guilty. You're wicked. So you need to repent because more and more bad stuff is just going to happen to you. Okay? Um, with that, we can summarize these. <coughs> you have Job. You have Elihu. We haven't had him yet. Okay, he comes next, right? You have Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So, the way that these characters play out in this story, okay, is Job is arguing for his own righteousness. Alright? That he is righteous. That Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are arguing for the retribution principle. Alright? Elihu is going to come in and argue for God's justice. So, you have in this, this triangle these, these ideas that are playing out that each of these, which this should teach us a couple of things, you know, why do these guys not see eye to eye on things? They're arguing from a different perspective, right? So, Job understands the retribution principle. So he's saying, yeah, but there's, there's something that, that, that doesn't fit with that. Like, this is, it's, it's not match matching. There's something else going on. And so I want my day in court. And that's what Job keeps demanding all through this, is that I want to hear from God. Like, I've heard enough from you guys. I want God to tell me what's going on. 
I don't know if you've ever been, like, your life has been so, like, messed up in, in your mind that you're like, no, God, I want my day in court. I want to hear from you now. But that's how Job is. And I think the arrogance for it, you already know if you've read the rest of the story, that he, he does get a day with God, that God does actually show up. So then what we have in chapter 28 is the wisdom interlude. So this is page 25 in your notes, Roman numeral 3. So the wisdom interlude. And this is where we learn about the fear of Yahweh in Job. So the fear of, of Yahweh. In Job 1.1, one, one, or actually in Job 28.28, uh, 28, okay, Fear the Lord's wisdom and to turn from evil is understanding. Job 28, 28. So again, this reminds us of Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is this. Wisdom and to turn from evil is understanding. So if you actually understand wisdom, what we would do, you would turn from your evil ways. Uh, Bruce Walking, when he talks about the fear of Yahweh, in, in his um, biblical theology book of the Old Testament, he uses... Uh, the phrase I am all the way through. You know, that's God's self-revealed name, right? So since Yahweh is the I am, meaning eternal. Um, because God is eternal, okay, he's not created, then then his wisdom is, is good for all the ages, right? Because it's God's wisdom, and God is eternal. So he is incomparable. So there's no images to be made of him that are adequate or, or even accurate. So the idea that, that wisdom comes from God, it's revealed from God, and then it's supposed to be lived out and practiced by us, demonstrating our understanding, as that verse is saying, of the wisdom, is what uh, Walke is trying to get at, and what in the book of Job we're, we're being instructed to learn from the plight that Job goes through. And so we, we know God, we become known by him, but that's only as he makes himself known to us. If God doesn't reveal himself, we, we don't know. So in, in the case with Job, so we stopped in the middle of the storyline, right? So if God never shows up, what's the conclusion of the story? I mean, we know God shows up, right? But if he doesn't, like, what's the conclusion of the story? You've got these three friends that say, you got to repent, you've done wrong. And you got Job saying, no, I haven't done wrong. How, how do you find your way through this impact? God's going to show up for us. Um, man does not know wisdom, and he doesn't value it. And I'm going to repeat the, the phrase that I said earlier to him. Unless you know comprehensively, you can never know what is good with certainty and speak authoritatively. And this is the issue in Job. Do any of the three friends know comprehensively? No, they don't. Does Job know comprehensively? No, we know more than Job as we're reading it. Of course, it's after the fact, right? But we know more because we have chapters 1 and 2. You walk into the middle of a movie. Do you know what's going on? No, but you miss the setup. That's what's going on. And let me make a, a, a parallel connection with us. Um, when we're born, we're dropped into the narrative story. Like the story's been going on for thousands of years. If we don't get caught up, you know, if someone doesn't show us the cake from the first segment, then we're clueless as to what's going on. 
And that's why the revelation of God is so important. And that's why having the scriptures in, in written form is so important. Because we can get caught up. We can get the first take. Because we've got it right here. Because Job drops into this story just like Job was dropped into this story. And so we turn to this section of this interlude about wisdom. And in chapter 28, in the, uh, the turning point of the chiastic structure, Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, speaking about wisdom, it is not in me. The sea says it is not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed at the price. Job 28, 12 to 15. It continues on. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. God understands his way, and he knows his place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he imparted weight to the wind, and meted out the waters by measure. When he set a limit for the rain, and a course for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it, and also searched it out. And to the man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. And so, in this wisdom interlude, we find that while Job maintains his innocence, while the three friends were not able to convince him otherwise, and then Elihu is going to show up. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of uh, Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. His anger burned against his three friends. He was a little upset because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So, you know, in one sense, he's saying, how can you condemn the guy? You haven't figured out what the problem is. And the other, he's saying, listen, Job, how can you be so self-righteous? How, how can you sit there and, and uh, expect God to give you some answer about this? So Elijah had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. So here you're seeing both culturally and, well, it's culturally. I mean, because the Bible is culturally um, written also, but the idea of respect for elders, elders being older people, right? So, um, Elihu, he speaks, chapter 32, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, right? So in 32, Elihu has waited to hear wisdom from his elders, but none has come. In 33, Job has ignored that God is greater than man. That's the charge. Job, God's greater than you, okay? 34, God does not do evil. Job speaks as a rebel. 35, God has not listened to Job's empty words. In 36 and 7, God is exalted beyond our knowing. And so in, in these aspects, Elihu lays out similar charges to, to Job, but differently than the, um, the other three friends. Chapter 32. So behold, God is, God is exalted and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable, for he draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the mist, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he spreads his lightning about him, and he covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges people. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with the lightning, 
he commands it to strike the mark. Its noise declares its presence. The cattle also discern what is coming up. And at this also my heart trembles, and it leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose in his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightning when his voice was heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Out of the south comes the storm, out of the north the cold. From the breath of God ice is made, and the expanse of the waters is frozen. Also with moisture he loads the thick clouds. He disperses the cloud with his lightning. What, what, what do you see being said here in, in these passages? I mean, we, there's, there's many more. What do you see being said? Job 37. Despite all this, what do we find right in the midst of, of his speech? I mean, he continues on. There's, there's more to what he says. Um, you know, you go through the, the rest of chapter 37 here. And he continues with a few more things. You know, who makes all this stuff? We know about the clouds and the lightning. Another passage. The land is filled because of the south wind. Can you spread out the sky? Song of Mormir. So, you know, you're nothing like God, okay? But I want to back up to... Uh, chapter 36 in um, verse 11 he says if you serve him obediently you end your days in prosperity and your years in happiness but if you do not obey you cross the river of death and die without knowledge what is that again? that's the retribution right? okay so the bottom line is at the heart of it guess what? no one can really figure out why is such a, a righteous thing that's going on so thrown to the ends of the planet here everyone wants to give an answer shows up. God shows up, right? And then God shows up. Alright? They, they couldn't figure it out. They don't know what's going on. And so in chapter 38, it says, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, and here's what he said. Now, if you've seen any of this, what does God say? Where were you when I did this and this and this and this, right? And can you control this and this and this and this, right? Well, what is he saying to Job? Right. Yes. Job never gets his question answered. When God finally speaks, 
He does not give Job any answers to his questions. He does not give Job any comfort in his situation. He just says, are you God? That's really the bottom line. That's what he says. Are you God, Job? And Job has to humbly say what? No, I'm not God. But, we don't like that, do we? I think we don't like that there's this whole unansweredness about what God's doing. That we can't see how what's going on right now is actually going to work itself out in the greater future. Or we don't like that our life is, is is not able to be completely figured out on a piece of paper and that we can see the finished product. We don't like that we're left with Jesus being able to do the work in Israel even until it's complete and finished. We want to see only what that completion is worth it. Go back to belief. This is what faith is all about. This is what the whole relationship with God truth is, it's difficult, right? It was difficult for Adam, he made a wrong choice. It's, it's difficult for Job, but Job endured. And we talked about in the New Testament because he endured. So God shows up and he says basically, I'm God, and you're not. In 38, verses 1 to 3, he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Okay? I'm going to ask you some questions. You teach me. School me something here, boy. Right? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding. Who sets its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line? And as you already know, he continues through here. There's a whole line of all of these questions. And at the end... Job say in chapter 40 verses 30 to four, 3 to 4 Job says behold I'm insignificant what can I say I, I am just a good seed a grasshopper in hand I, I got nothing to say I lay my hand over my mouth once I have spoken I will not answer twice I'll add nothing more and he's saying things yeah I, I'm not going to say anything so the Lord answered continued on and he asked him in verse 8 and 9 he says will you really annul my judgment will you condemn me that you may be justified but you have an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his now that first verse there verse 8 I want to focus on that for just a second okay part of Job's claim is I've, I've done nothing wrong I want you to justify me now part of that is So, is God really just in how he's running things? Is partly coming through here also. And that's the same thing that comes up when we deal with um, things like, you know, the conquest of, of Joshua against Canaan, or we deal with uh, how does God let all these horrible things happen in the world. And it's injustice as such. Of course, you're back to the evil trilemma, right? He's powerful, but he's not stopping me, so why not? Okay? So, then Job says, in chapter 42, verse 1 and 2, he says, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
that's part of the whole problem. We do stuff he can do all he but then he didn't do what we wanted. So he continues on with this. And what do we learn from the end of it? If you don't get your wise answer. Friends didn't answer properly. They didn't have the right counsel. Job never gets his, his question answered. The ideas of the, the kinsman redeemer that come through in the text, it's that God is actually the one that comes in. God steps in for Job. The friends are, are rebuked. Job is, is blessed mightily and gets back all of this stuff. The other ideas of God being worthy of trust. The point of the book is to show that he is worthy of trust, even though you might not be able to figure out what's going on, even though it might seem like darkness to you. Job's friends do not have it all figured out, even though they thought they did. Um, the, the other thing uh, with the book of Job is that even though Job... Um, repeatedly address God while the friends never made any appeal on their behalf or on his behalf. So Job is the one that has the audacity, if you will, to confront God. Is he really rebuked for wanting to stay in court? I mean, he's rebuked in the sense that it's like, you don't know, right? But who gets the rebuke in the story? Friends get the rebuke in the story. Okay? So, I think as we, we wrap this up, one of the things is that um, dealing with wisdom literature is about learning how to take God's revelation and to live it in a proper way so we can be blameless in it. Okay? Perfect in a blameless sense. Okay? Not that you'll never sin, but blameless, devoted to God. And so, the apostle say, the disciples, help us in our unbelief. What did Jesus say? We have the, the faith grain of a mustard seed, right? So, we need to trudge on through. You need to endure. So, one of the first verses in the beginning somewhere that I put up from the New Testament related to the book of Job was how Job is known for enduring through this season of his life. Okay? And, and it wasn't like, I don't know what time period you think it all happened in, but wasn't just like a few days or something. It was th this was over a period of time that all these things happened. You got to think back. They don't have airplanes. Nobody's dropping in out of an airplane and burning houses and attacking a family, right? So I mean, there's, there's people coming in on camels and horses and stuff, right? So all this stuff took time and it devastated Job. And the bottom line is retribution principle. One way only, not the other way. So let me just let me get back. If you obey, not the other way for you. You can't expect judgment. Okay? If you disobey, you can't expect 
actually in the end, at the end, right? End result, right? Heaven, hell, etc., right? However, the arrow for the foot. They do not wear a foot. If this is happening, it does, or what appears to be this, it does not mean that this happens. And if you don't see this in your life, it does not mean you're not going to see it. Does that make sense? And so, the retribution principle... Any questions? This girl's gonna be a tough book. It was I was reading it for a long time when I was a younger person. So, but the same God who created the heavens and the earth is the same God who spoke, who showed up, and is the same one that controls your life and mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are. Thank you.